Welcome to the 2E <laughs> list. Excuse me, whoever made a sound. Okay. <clears throat> that, was, that was me. <laughs> Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 126 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hola. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hola. Bailey, I think I'm going to keep in that little scolding you did just to show the Pedros who you really are. <laughs> no, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's too good. Oh, uh, what if you guys were f- just afraid of me all the time? Um, what yeah, if. what if? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, hi everybody. Hi Bailey. Hi Bailey. I'm 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 nice. You're great. Bailey You're great, is nice, Bailey. but she's also very scary. Oh wow. It's true. It's true. Just like Halloween. <sighs> Just like Halloween. Speaking of, it is spooky season. I've been trying to find a good spooky book. Um, mm-hmm. I'm striking out. I know it's November 1st. I know we're not allowed to talk about it anymore. But Pedro's, if you have any like modern, really scary books, I would love to know about them. Billy's just not afraid of ghosts. I ain't afraid of no ghost. <laughs> Are you telling me Misty, the pony of that island, wasn't very scary? <laughs> it was scary in a different way. But like, I, so I read a book off my shelf. So I got another one off the to read list. It's called Everything the Darkness Eats by Eric LaRocca. I really was looking forward hmm. to it. It had a really creepy cover. It had a thing that I had never seen in a book before where on each of the pages, there was like this like background, like as if you printed your book report on like a patterned paper and it just was like hmm. on the written on stone cobblestones. So it was very hard to read. I did not like this. Um, that's the yeah, that's the- a big call. I know. <laughs> a lot of ink. A lot of ink went into that call. <laughs> and it had a really good premise. It's about like... The back of the book says it's about, like, a creepy guy who's been around for centuries coming to a New England town and, like, there's murders. I'm, like, all in. Okay. But it really Mm -hmm. wasn't that. Like, I don't even know if that was an accurate description and it didn't come together for me and I wanted it to be scary. Basically, I was disappointed. Hmm. That's rough. So, anyway, so if you have any scary recommendations, hit me up. I have a scary recommendation. What? I've already talked about it, but I finished Pet Cemetery. Oh, yeah. And I won't take up too much of your time, but... I'm going to make a statement right now. I think it's the best Stephen King book. Ooh. You know why? Why? Because he actually nails the ending. I think it's debatable about it being the best Stephen King book of all time, but it is not debatable that it is is for sure of the books I have read, 100% his best ending he's ever written. He does have trouble with endings. Mm -hmm. And spelling. This one is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. It's a really good one. I I really, really loved it. Okay. All right. Well, maybe I'll do that one. Dylan, do you have any spooky recommendations? Uh... No, I actually don't read a lot of spooky books. Mm, coward. What? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like you set that one up for yourself, I, I did, I, Yeah. No one's asked me if I've read any scary books, and I'm offended. Um, Andrew, are you a coward or not? I'm not a coward, but I haven't really read one recently that I think is like super dope. I read Summer Suns, despite Bailey's review. Uh, oh, wow. What, what okay. Did you like it? I did not think it was as bad as Bailey put it out to be. And I think a large part of that is I'm not a narc who cares that much about going to class. <laughs> <laughs> because honestly, like, very I, stressful. It, I can see how that would stress Bailey out. But like, if you just sort of accept that that's a conceit of the book, 
you can move on from it and it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. Um, Andrew, I've discovered a disturbing trend because I'm your Goodreads friend, which is that you keep reading books that Bailey and I have reviewed poorly. <laughs> like you've read Wise Blood and you've read Summer Suns. Like you're just trailing us. Falconer, so which you chaos. liked, but it still yeah. were sort of mixed on. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'm currently reading Devil House by John Darnielle, which Bailey, I think you liked, but <gasps> had the same problem you have a lot of stuff with that it isn't necessarily what it's advertising and i'm sort of hit at having the same reaction to it <laughs> that's mm. fair also i have issues with the end but i can't say without spoiling but yeah yeah so i've just i've been dipping my toe and i'm hoping to have the free weekend in jillian's in seattle so i'm hoping to read a bunch so maybe i'll have really nailed it by the time we're way past halloween oh good okay good yeah you're welcome pages for the parade of spooky books on november 1st <laughs> does anybody have any shame speaking of spooky things Ooh. to be ashamed of no Oh. No, I kept it. I kept it 100. Well, I have a little uh, bit of shame that I must. <laughs> Bailey kept it 200 by getting 200 new books. <laughs> um, so last week we had a block party in our neighborhood. I've never been to one of these before. Whoa. I don't usually communicate with neighbors. So there was a block party. There was a bouncy house. There were kids. It was fun, etc. On the way home, we passed the little free library. And, you know, I had to peek in. And uh-huh. There were two books in it. There was Akin by Emma Donahue and The Fervor by mm. Alma Katsu. I don't know too much mm. about them, except I like those authors. The Fervor, I think, is horror set in a Japanese internment camp because that's the same author that did Ooh. the Donner Party one and she did one about the Titanic. So, you know, I'll give it a shot. And then I just love Emma Donahue. So I did pick up those two. And then when we got yeah. home, Maggie was like, can we go back and get another boring book? And I was like, okay, rude. <laughs> is that what she calls them? <laughs> yeah, I guess like adult books are boring books. So we went and I pretended to get one. She's like, no, get a boring book. I'm like, okay. So I picked up The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. I don't know if anybody's read that, but you know, obviously it's a beloved book club book. Yeah, I've acquired three books. You can't blame Maggie for your shame. Yeah. This. I was going to say, you can say no to, to Maggie in terms of going back and getting another book. No, no, she's very powerful. This also feels like the long con where you're like, you just offhanded mention that like Maggie to blame for this one book and then the next episode you're like yeah maggie insisted i get these two books and the next episode after that you're like maggie insisted i get like 30 books <laughs> maggie insisted i fly back to portland oregon and go to powell's and <laughs> listen she has a lot of opinions i have to follow her she's nope. very powerful um yeah so i do have some well, she is indeed powerful <laughs> <laughs> toby can i trust you to have read your book oh yeah this week oh. Yes, you can, because I read Trust by Hernan Diaz. Yay! Trust, trust, trust. Wall Street. Business. Trust. Trust. Exactly. This is a very short log line, but I have a very long plot summary, so Which deal again, with it. Which, cannot emphasize enough that log lines are supposed to be short, you guys. <laughs> well, how's this one? Hernan Diaz's Trust is a multi-layered narrative about wealth, truth, and the corrosive power that the former often wields over the latter. See, that's kind of a long logline, and it's more... All right, Pages, just so you know, early on in our recording, Dylan insisted we do loglines for each book. Yes. I am not someone who has ever had to write a logline for anything, and so I assumed that meant I needed to write, like, a paragraph summary. And then he's made fun of me ever since, even though the paragraph sort of summary with an intriguing ending bit is probably more useful than a one-sentence logline for listeners. (sighs) It's more evocative. <sighs> and I have always written log lines. They're just usually not very informative. So you decide, Pages. <laughs> well, Dylan, they will never understand us. Um, anyway, tell us the premise of your book then. Okay. So I'm going to go kind of into detail about this 
book and the structure and all that kind of stuff. The book is divided into four sections. The first section is called Bonds. Uh, and right away, it leaps into this pretty engaging story of a man named Benjamin Rask. Starts when he's a kid. Um, he's a child of wealthy, quite distant parents. He's kind of a loner. He seems like he's very precocious, but isn't interested in the outside world or people really at all. He grows up. He becomes this financial giant. He's an absolute genius. And he becomes powerful enough to have possibly even been a partial catalyst for the stock market crash that precipitates the Great Depression. Doesn't seem very genius to me. Mm. <laughs> but it's it, it's implied that he does it on purpose so that he can basically short the entire Great Depression so he can make money off of it. It's a very cold portrayal of this man. Um, and along the way, Benjamin Rask meets and falls in love with a woman named Helen. Their marriage is an odd, fairly cold one, but they do appear to deeply care about each other. And the relationship seems to be the one redeeming aspect of Benjamin's life. That's the first part. It's a it's a pretty straightforwardly written in a kind of quiet style that's very readable, but it's a short, almost like a novelette, and it ends, and then you're like, what? The next section <laughs> abruptly starts. It's called My Life. It is basically these scattered half thoughts, and as you move through it, it becomes clear that it is notes by a man called Andrew Bevel, who is attempting to write his autobiography. And as you get deeper and deeper into the notes, you realize that Andrew Bevel is the real person upon whom Benjamin Rask was based, and he is livid that this author of Bonds has slandered him in his life. He considers himself to be a genius. He considers himself self-made. He considers himself to be a guider of the nation, and he wants to set the record straight. However, he's not a very good writer. He can't really put anything together, and he abandons the attempt very, very quickly. It's not a very long part of the book, but it is an interesting thing. You already have a layer on top of a layer. Then there's the next section. The next section is called A Memoir Remembered. Um, it is told from the perspective of Ida Partenza, and you eventually learn that she is the ghostwriter that Andrew Bevel eventually hires to write his autobiography for him. She is writing from the perspective of near our current day, looking back to her work that she did for Bevel just after the Great Depression. She sees pretty much straight through him, but is nonetheless drawn to the kind of black hole of power that his wealth represents. She sees just how much influence he really has and the way that he can bend reality, literally, to align with how he would like it to be. Erasing people from existence or destroying reputations, suing people so that they basically no longer exist. It tells kind of a dual narrative in the present day. She is searching through the museum that Bevel's house has become. And in the past, she is writing the autobiography for Bevel. In the future, she becomes obsessed with finding notes that were written by Mildred, who's Bevel's wife, who basically Bevel, when he's telling her story in the past, is very dismissive of her. He loves her very much, but you can tell she's being narrowed in his story to this beautiful woman who was perfect in every way, and he's very sad that she's gone. And Ida Partenza and we can tell that that is certainly not the case, and she was a much more complicated figure than he is allowing her to be, and in fact is creating her to be in by forcing Ida Partenza to write this book about her. The fourth part of the book is called Futures, and you're going to have to read Trust to figure out what it's about, because I ain't going to tell you, Pedros. Ooh. Toby, Ooh. I don't see why you can't summarize that in one sentence. <laughs> 
<laughs> you can see, I think, why I dedicated a fair amount of time to explaining the structure of the book, because I think the structure of the book is a large part of what it is. It is this multi-layered thing that every single layer added reveals more and more about this story, which is at its core about Bevel and his wife, Mildred. I'm going to my orcs and elves. Okay. Um, Work it up. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go elves first. Actually, Love it up. Overall, surprise, surprise. You know, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's a pretty good book. <laughs> um, it's pretty it good. Feels, <laughs> it's pretty good. It feels very of the time of our current time right now. Uh, if you've seen Succession, it's like basically what if you had a more serious look at Logan and his psyche and got to be inside of his mind? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like that. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it definitely blends well with the kind of current mood around billionaires, these people who tend to self-mythologize and justify to themselves and try to justify to the world where they are and how much control they have and how much wealth they have and how it's quote unquote okay or even good for them to have this much money and how they are actually benefiting the world by hoarding this money. Devil is very much that person. It is very satisfying to see him basically lacerated and kind of, you know, you can see right through him just like many people can see through a Musk or a Bezos. How many of the side characters are named Kieran Culkin? All of them, actually. It's very strange. I thought so. I thought so. <laughs> Bevel is not really a caricature. He's not really meant to be funny, but he almost is funny because, you know, when you see through someone like this, you can't help but think that they're faintly ridiculous. But he's also quite scary. So I think Bevel is amazingly drawn. Mildred is amazingly drawn. Ida Partenza is a great character. Basically, all the characters are very well realized. And it's just, yeah, it's it's an amazing book in that respect. Another really impressive thing is the shifting style of the book. Each section is written in a completely different style. And it's It's hard to describe because they are recognizably and strongly different styles, but it's not done with a heavy hand. It it feels natural, and that is a difficult thing to do. There's no stylistic tells. There's no hand of Hernan Diaz throughout the thing. It really feels like he's morphing from character to character, becoming these different people writing in their own styles, which is really impressive. Mighty morphin' Hernan Diaz. That was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And another thing that I really liked about the book is that while the plot itself doesn't seem very suspenseful, there is a strong current of suspense that runs through the first three sections, basically relating to the mystery of Mildred, who Mildred really is. Are we ever going to learn who she really was and and what she did for Bevel and for the world? Um, And I think that that is a really unique source of suspense and a really unique source of kind of the engine of the story. And um, it's done really well. She was the final wife of Evelyn Hugo, duh. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are honestly, there are more elves I could go into, but those are my main ones. I will say I had a few orcs. One orc is that the suspense disappears in the last section and it's a bit of a slog to get through the last section, I will say. I can't say much more about it because I don't want to tell you what's in it, but... If you know, you know. So yeah, I hope that's satisfying for this book that just came out. And then I think this is this might be a reaction that I've seen other people having as well, where this is a really good book. I, I really was impressed by it. I really enjoyed it. But I did finish it and kind of find myself being like, this won the Pulitzer? Like, it, it feels like a little bit on the nose. Um, 
I don't know. It just I think honestly it was harmed in my mind by being a Pulitzer winner. And I think if I had just read it out of nowhere, I might have been even more impressed. But, you know, it's regrettable that sometimes, you know, you have expectations about books going in and then it doesn't quite match up. It reminds me of that joke from Parks and Rec. The, well, I've won a Pulitzer Prize. So anything I say is something a Pulitzer Prize winner would say. I really like the book. My orcs are pretty small quibbles. I strongly recommend this book. It's very worth checking out. And I give it four stars. Four stars. Mm -hmm. How many Pulitzer Prizes would you give it? Uh, A half of one, apparently. (laughs) If you don't know, Hernan Diaz shared this Pulitzer Prize with Barbara Kingsolver in her novel (laughs) Demon Copperhead, which is also on the to-read list. Okay, great. Uh, Andrew, do you have any facts on Hernan Diaz? Yeah, but before I do, I just want to say that the reason I do log lines differently, and I don't even <laughs> call them log lines anymore. <laughs> I specifically call them a summary paragraph now, so deal with it, folks. Okay, yes, facts on Hernan Andrew Diaz. Andrew has been scribbling that. I've been hearing his pencil going the whole time. He's just been writing that, editing that statement. It's, a, it's actually an old-fashioned slate. I'm yeah. right on during, during the Halloween month. But yes, I do have some facts on Hernan Diaz. He has a a little bit less available widely about him as a lot of sort of newer authors do, but we got an interview and we're going to have some fun, guys. Settle, settle in and let's learn about the man who wrote Trust. Hernan Diaz was born in 1973 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, but moved to Sweden aged two um, and returned after the political situation shifted back towards democracy in Argentina. Hmm. Uh, he spent the rest of his childhood in Argentina and attended a university in Buenos Aires and then left for London to pursue his master's at King's College London. And then in 1999, he traded one big old city for another one and moved to New York and received his PhD from NYU in a sort of combination degree of comparative literature, Latin American literature, and philosophy. Whoa. Then there's a big blank space on all of his bios. Oh, did he hang out with Taylor Swift? That's when he was um, listening to the song Blank Space by Taylor Swift. Yep, two versions of the same joke, equally good. Who's to say what will be kept in? <laughs> uh, he's worked a lot in academia, so I assume he was sort of plugging away at that and uh, and writing. But his first published book was actually a book of nonfiction entitled Borges Between History and Eternity in 2012. Um, and his first novel, In the Distance, was published in 2017 and was very well received, making many top 10 lists and even earning a spot on LitHub's top 20 novels of the decade not just the year, the decade. It was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Oh. And this is when we cut to The Last Dance, and Diaz took that personally, because the (laughs) next book he wrote, (laughs) he really hit the gym, started um, grinding away. He got himself a big log and started punching it. Exactly, exactly. Um, And his next novel, he's only published two so far, uh, is Trust, which came out in 2022. And as we've heard, is a co-winner of the Pulitzer along with Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. I wonder if he's going to take that personally and try and win it exclusively next year. Yeah, it's a a journey. There's a natural narrative here. (laughs) (laughs) He works with Columbia University at editing a literary journal and has held several positions in academia. He's also received nearly every award and fellowship that you can think of. I don't think he's gotten a MacArthur genius but that's the only one i didn't see that was one of the big ones and that's like all that's available about him online um in terms of straight bio but he has done a fair amount of um interviews as you might expect with a high profile book such as this and one with our favorite publication the guardian is included here what led you to tell and retell the fictional life of a wall street financier and diaz says almost no novels in the american canon talk about money making 
Many American novels revolve around money, but the money's already been made, and the books are only about the adjacent sy- symptoms bubbling up around money, the corseted mm. manners of the wealthy, and so on. Money has this almost transcendental place in American culture, yet it's also taboo. We don't talk about it, and we don't even understand it. That seems bonkers and fascinating. On one hand, money resists narrative because it's coded in this rhetorical varnish of pseudoscience in order to be purposeful, imperturbable. We've had all of these experiences negotiating a loan or a credit card. Like, it isn't meant to be understood, but on the flip side, money is very reliant on storytelling. Look at how desperately those who amass any kind of fortune try to account for how it was accumulated so they can present mm-hmm. it in a legitimate way to the public. It's like he's never read any Michael yeah. Lewis. Come on. <laughs> I will say, I think he does an amazing job in the book. He moves from explaining systems of money and explaining how these fortunes are made in an intelligible way. And then really quickly, he slides the slider all the way to the other side where he gets so into the arcane details that at least for me, my head is just spinning. And I think that's the intended effect is just he reveals how intentionally convoluted these plans to amass wealth are. He seems like a very purposeful and like considered writer, which is which is intriguing. He knows what he's doing. And that's why he's going to get that Pulitzer solo next time you hear me, Columbia University. All right. Why did you avoid dialogue almost entirely in the novel's first half? Toby, did you notice that? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Diaz answers the first section is written in this hyper careful turn of the century prose but there's a punk rock provocation at its core my editor said do you realize there are no physical descriptions in the first part and I was like yes and it's very intentional yep. nobody has a body nobody has a face and in the first 160 pages there's only one line of dialogue one word one letter I it was a formal dare almost like an Olympian constraint and it's- I know what an Olympian constraint is and we don't have to talk about it it's <laughs> like Green Eggs and Ham, didn't they bet Dr. Seuss he could only... Use a certain amount of words? Yeah, yeah in a book. Gotcha. Did it. Although, what if he didn't realize that it's like, oh, I didn't include any dialogue. I better make this sound cool that I did it on purpose. Well, I love it. It's like, did you notice <laughs> that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> a couple more quotes from Mr. Diaz. Um, his question is, That word trust resonates throughout the novel, not least in defining the relationship between you and the reader as you jump from one version of the story to the next. When did you know it should be the title? Diaz answers, it came to me on on an elliptical trainer in the gym. I was two thirds into the writing and I was desperate because I didn't yet have a title, but I wanted it to be as layered as the book. It was like an epiphany. I typed it into my phone. Very excited. Sounds like an elliptical constraint. (laughs) Next question. Are you deliberately moving through U.S. history one novel at a time? Diaz quickly answers no. Um, (laughs) Apparently in the distance takes place like slightly earlier in in, in sort of the late 1800s sort of Wild West Manifest Destiny time. But he's not doing it. So don't get excited. This isn't his Sufjan Stevens project. (laughs) How involved are you in HBO's forthcoming adaptation of Trust? Whoa. Uh, And and then uh, Hernan Diaz just drops this name and says, Kate Winslet is producing it. We're closely in touch and she has all these amazing ideas. (laughs) At first I was excited to write it, but I realized I'd be better off as an executive producer after a couple of really big sleepless nights deciding what to do. It seemed creatively more honest to write a new book rather than staying a year or two more with trust. So I'm fully engaged and have a say, but I'm not writing it. And yes, I do know Kate Winslet. I added that last part. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah, and I, I will leave it there. Um, he has a he puts out a couple sort of book recommendations and also cites that uh, Borges, unsurprisingly, was a major influence on his writing. That is uh, Hernan Diaz. He may appear again later because he apparently only hits bangers. <laughs> apparently. All right. Well, does anybody have any questions for me? Yeah. Uh, what did you read, Bailey? Uh, <laughs> Misty of Tinegig. Misty of Cinco Teague, the horse book. Well, tell us about it. 
Well. <laughs> That's the best transition we've ever done. Bailey, I mean, that tra- that review was really, really powerful, but I don't know if anything can pull us away like wild horses or anything. <laughs> Dylan, I'm sorry. What are you doing? We've already, we already have the transition in the back. Yeah, no, we've, we've hit a home run, and you're trying to get another at bat. It's not your turn. It's not needed. Come on, Bailey. I All asked right. you a direct question. Sorry. Yes. Um, I, I read the book Misty of Chincoteague by Marguerite Henry. Hey. Hey. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yes. Okay. So this book, Misty of Chincoteague, um, I, I would say not everybody knows it, but horse girls will know it. Mm. I was not necessarily a horse girl, which is probably why I'm only reading it now. Horse girls will remember. Horse girls will remember. She was a lobster lady. It's, you know, you know the book like Black Beauty? It's like mm-hmm. that. So this is a children's book. It was written in the 40s. <laughs> um, and you can tell. The plot is that there is an island off the coast of Maryland called Chincoteague, which is next to another island called Assateague. And a long, long time ago, as my daughter Maggie would say, long, long time ago, a boat crashed there with horses on it. <gasps> the wild horses took over that island. And then oh, cool. people moved in. And this follows two kids who live on a horse farm who every year they participate in the challenge to rein in the wild horses and sell them. And the kids are named Maureen and Paul. And they're, I don't know, 10, 12. And they don't really give ages or age descriptions. They don't give ages or physical descriptions or dialogue about the whole well, thing. Well, to be fair, in 1947, that was basically a third of your life. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah they're, they're, imagine them as 32 and 38. Continue. <laughs> there actually isn't much descriptions, but there are pictures. So I guess that's kind of a description. Mm. They're, they're basically white you know, children. I've heard they're worth a thousand words. <laughs> um, and in this particular year of the pony. What's it called? The Pony Market or whatever. Express? Forget the name. Um, They set out to capture and buy this amazing horse called the Phantom, which is one that nobody can tame. Oh, it's Um, not called Misty? Well, wait. So Paul sets out to get Phantom and people are like, no way you can't get Phantom. He finds Phantom and he's about to drive Phantom through to the other horses. And it's kind of cool. The horses like swim across the water to go to the other island. Anyway, but he finds out that Phantom has a baby horse, which he names Misty. It's about the baby horse. (laughs) Now that's a twist. Take notes, notes, Hernan Diaz. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the second half of the book from Misty's perspective, and we get to finally learn what Misty thinks about Yeah, it's so weird how many parallels there are between these two books. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so... Then, spoiler alert, they bring the horses back to the island. There's a whole thing about if they're going to buy the horse. I'm not going to spoil if they're able to buy the horse, but I mean, you can probably guess. And then. Wait, wait, wait. But real talk, wait. they found the horse in the woods. Why do they have to buy it? Yeah, why do they have to buy it? This is a good question. And I had the same thought because <laughs> Paul, as soon as he sees the horse, is like, I'm going to buy them both. And I'm like, why don't you just take them? Because I guess it's a whole thing on the island that they round up the horses, they bring them to this big pen, and then they have a horse auction. So yeah. they can't go around that. But then apparently. who gets the money? Well, they can't really Didn't look. Paul they, got the horse. Apparently, the, the fireman does. The head of the fire station gets the money. No, this is a real problem because <laughs> this is the problem with capitalism, everybody here. <laughs> This is why a farmer can't eat corn from his own field because he has to sell it back to the man who's leasing the land. This is monstrous, Bailey. 
Also, what I, out of everybody in the town who you could have said, my last guess would have been that the money goes to the firemen. <laughs> You know, those greedy firemen. Yeah, exactly. He's, He's up there twirling his mustache. There's there's a chapter where it's like the fireman looked him in the eye and then took off a $50 bill and handed it to him. I'm like, okay, yeah. Mr. Moneybags. Anyway, yes. So, you know, they may or may not adopt both horses. And then the book, I'm just going to tell you, they adopt both horses, obviously. And then. Oh, my God. <laughs> And then every year um, around this this Pony Express time, I forgot the word for the pony for the pony auction. Um, there is a big race, and in this race, oh. the two kids, Paul and Maureen, train Phantom to be in the race, and it's a whole thing because they're children and they train this wild horse. Mm-hmm. And then it's a question of who's going to get to ride the horse because both Paul and Maureen want to ride it. You'll never and guess. And then the fireman steps up and he's like, ah, I'm going to ride. Do you do you think it's the boy or the girl that gets to ride the horse? I think it's the boy. That's correct. No, I think it's the girl. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> this was written in the 40s, yeah. Andrew, remember. I was going to say this. But she writes for horse girls. Yeah. I thought this would be like a National Velvet situation. After last week, after Toby's last book, he's now an expert in horse racing. So he should be able to tell us. Definitely. Um, but mm. no, the grandmother whips out a chicken bone um, or what's it called? A wishbone. And they, and so it's fair. But then, of course, the the boy gets to ride the horse because patriarchy. And then some other stuff happens, which I'm not going to spoil. I'll keep that as a, a secret. But that's basically the entire mm-hmm. book. And I have some things sounds, to say about it. Sounds not bad. Sounds kind of fun. It's not bad, Dylan. I want to show you a picture of the fire chief. Well, that's the back of his head. Well, it's just a picture of the fire chief looking over around the town as if I own this town. So <laughs> it's just a guy's the back of a guy's head. That's it. Uh, anyway. He has no face? Yeah. That's scary. Look, this is a picture of the fire chief giving money to children. Anyway, this is not working for the podcast because you can't see it. There, <laughs> no. It's, it's literally just a balding man giving money to children. Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of pictures in here. That's something to say about the book. The book, as I said, is obviously written in the 40s. Um, there is a little bit of dialect. Were there um, any pictures in Trust, Toby? <laughs> no. Hmm. <laughs> All right, so this is an mm. example of some dialogue. This is the grandpa. I guess this is like Maryland dialogue. I don't know. But he's talking about how you can tame some horses and some of them you can't. So he says, some of them you just can't gentle. Not after they lived wild. Only the youngsters worth bothering about as far as the gentlin goes. Recommend her that. Yeah, that's exactly how people in Maryland talk. Everybody, all of our listeners in Maryland. I <laughs> Can you read it in a Baltimore accent? Omar coming. I ain't got time to school ya. I ain't got time to school ya. That's what me and grandma pays taxes for. Besides, we have been a settling here so long the sand You're is getting liable farther away. to drift up over and. us and make another white cliff out in us. It's time we get back home to Chincoteague and grandma's turkeys. Edit point. <laughs> So there's little dialogue. It's like, I feel like I should be offended by the dialogue, but I don't know why. So this is this is quaint Americana. It's about horses. It's made for kids. The setting is interesting. This is a real place. I actually read that this is based on a real story, but they really do do this horse gathering thing and they swim across the water. Guys, did you know horses are a real thing? And I'm obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I'll say another thing, which is that the book for being written in the 1940s is kinder than I expected it would be, more progressive to the horses. Like there is an element of, mm. oh man, I don't know why we're capturing these wild things. But how is it to Anyway, POCs? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this book is fine. It's, it, you know, it's inoffensive, but yet feels offensive in a weird way. Three stars. 
However, I do want to say one thing, which is that my whole life, I have had this book pretty much, I think, since I was born. I remember it being on my bookshelf. I always told myself I would read it. I thought it was my mom's, like, favorite book. Then as I picked it up to read it, originally published in the 40s, this edition was published in 1974 when my mom was, like, in college. So I was confused because I was like, I thought this was your childhood book. So I reached out to my mother and said, can you tell me about this? She's like, I've never seen that book in my life. (laughs) 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 so i i've been hanging on to this book for 37 years and i thought it was because it was my mom's favorite and she has no memory and so i think this horse is haunting me um three stars (laughs) nice it's certainly not because someone just gave you a gift when you were born around like a baby shower or something it could but it has no (laughs) note in it and i wasn't born until 86 this was in 74 like why would it be let me explain to you how publishing book editions of books no no (laughs) (laughs) so that is misty of Chincoteague. Uh, Andrew, do you have any facts on Marguerite Henry? What a journey. Okay. Yes, I do. Marguerite Henry was an author of haunted books. Oh, wait, that explains it. (laughs) (laughs) Marguerite Henry was born Marguerite Breithaupt on April 13th, 1902 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She was the youngest of five children. And when she was six, she came down with rheumatic fever, which kept her bedridden for seven years whoa um, goodness it doesn't seem like she was she wasn't bedridden sounds a little different than what it was she was just confined to her room and couldn't like go to school couldn't really interact with other kids her age so you don't mean like grandpa joe from trying the chocolate factory that little butthead is only <laughs> bedridden until he gets a chance to go to a candy factory don't get me started on grandpa <laughs> joe okay well it made her an author because as she was unable to attend school and or be around other peers she had a lot of time to sort of devote to her interests um and she discovered a love of reading and animals firemen horses a hatred of fire <laughs> no, um, um and she also began writing receiving a writing desk as a christmas present and saying quote at last i had a world of my very own a writing world and soon it would be populated by all the creatures of my imagination so she sold her first story when she was 11 what What? (laughs) yes i she did she received the equivalent of 250 dollars today for a story in a publication called the delineator um um, which specifically had asked for young writers to submit work that's more than i've ever been paid for my writing (laughs) (laughs) so fast start um and she sort of never looked back, or at least never looked back at having it as an interest. She attended um, the Milwaukee State Teachers College and then met her future husband, Sidney Crocker Henry, who was a salesman from Sheboygan. They were married for 64 years and lived together in wow. Wayne, Illinois for a long time of that. And they had a litany of pets, including horses. Horses. Oh. Henry wrote stories and novels primarily about horses and started collaborating with artist Wesley Dennis to do some of the illustrations of this she said and this is a great quote I had just finished writing Justin Morgan had a horse a name of one of her books and wanted the best horse artist in the world to illustrate it (laughs) so I went to the library studied the horse books and immediately fell in love with the work of Will James and Wesley Dennis when I found out Will James was dead I sent my manuscript to Wesley Dennis (laughs) well my first choice was dead Yeah, there's a little, I don't think it's a spice she intends, but it's there. I will say to like, no shade to Wesley Dennis, um, but he does a better job drawing horses than he does people. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that is shade. That is massive he just, shade. He, he, he draws hooves instead of hands. Um, <laughs> the people just look a little like horses. <laughs> I chose horses because hands are impossible. Okay, everyone knows that. Anywho, they worked together for 20 years and on over 20 books, so... 
it seems like it worked out despite her first choice being dead. Um, <laughs> so Misty of Chincoteague came out in 1947 and was widely successful. It remains her most well-known work. It was one of several of her books adapted for film, and Henry was inspired by a real-life Chincoteague pony that was named Misty of Chincoteague. Um, oh. Real name. Yeah, it's, it's a real story. Um, I mean, obviously, it's it's fictional. The uh, real story of Misty of Chincoteague, the horse wasn't wild. She was domesticated enough even to have her footprints put in the cement outside of the Roxy movie theater in Chincoteague. She was a bit of a local celebrity. but um, mm. So it was an invention, but based on a real horse with that exact name. While the horse lived with Marguerite Henry for a while. Um, Mm. She eventually had it moved back to the BB Ranch, um, which is where Misty was born. And the goodbye party at um, the Henry's Wayne, Illinois home had over 450 people at it when Misty was getting ready to make her journey away. Now, I'm going to interject because you've already moved past this, so I I hope I'm not spoiling any of your facts. Just to say that I just think it's really funny that the whole book is following these two little kids that are like, we never want to lose our pony. We love her so much. But in real life... Marguerite Henry bought the pony and took it to the Midwest. (laughs) If you're into this sort of thing, Misty lived to age 26 and was taxidermied upon her death. And she can be viewed along with one of her foals named Stormy at the Museum of Chincoteague Island. Yeah, I I Googled a picture of the real Misty and it just showed a taxidermied horse. I was like, dark. I was going to say, not taxidermied well, but still taxidermied. Henry won the Newbery Medal in 1949, not for Misty, but for a book called King of the Wind, the story of the Godolphin Arabian, also about horse. And she lived all the way up to age 95, publishing work until the year before her death. And she passed wow. away on November 26, 1997 in Rancho Santa Fe, California. Wow, that Dang. must be one of the longest lengths of publishing from 11 to 94. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty good run. And I know we dunked on her a lot. She, I didn't see anything in her bio other than that she bought the horse from kids who maybe loved it. Um, <laughs> that suggests yeah. that we need to dunk on her too hard. She seems like a, a nice person who published a lot of books that people liked. But so yeah, that's Marguerite Henry. There's a lot of a backlog to read if you get interested in it. And maybe if you have a, um, a horse-loving child in your life, sharing this work with them would be fun. Maybe <laughs> not in your late 30s when you're an established literary responder. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, rude. Um, Yeah, that's fair. So that is Misty of Chincoteague, three stars. If you're ever bored and, you know, want to have some fun, you should look at the Goodreads review, the one-star reviews. They are unhinged. (laughs) They make no (laughs) sense. I sent the one to these guys where someone was yelling about the kids who they... She called Bill and Mary. Their names are Paul and Maureen. (laughs) Thank you for those facts, Andrew. Uh, Do you have a game for us? And does it involve horses? I do. I mean, we've had a run of horse games recently. It's true. And last one was more of a traditional guessing game. So we're doing it a little differently this week. The name of the game is Horse Island. (gasps) Ooh. Are we going to be surrounded by a bunch of sexy horses and the one rule is don't fall in love? (laughs) It's up to you, Toby, because this is a creative game where you're going to create your own horse island. Oh, God. Dylan, you're free to play if you'd like. It's not really a game except that I will choose a winner at the end. (laughs) Here's the scenario. You are trapped with no hope of escape on an island with a bunch of horses. What book do you bring? What CD do you bring? (laughs) Exactly. You create a society with those horses after communing with them. Okay. And we're going to ask you a few questions to establish your specific island. First of all, name your island. My island is named Daniel Radcliffe in Equus. (laughs) 
Oh, boy. Okay, so we got Daniel Radcliffe. I'm going to write this down. Daniel Radcliffe in Equus. Okay. Mine is called The Isle of Maine. Like the Isle of Man. But it's Man. Mine's called Daniel Radcliffe in Equus and Isle of Maine. Beautiful. And mine's called Winko Teague. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. All right. These are three wonderful bases. Again, you're there with a bunch of horses. Together you have to create a society together. What is your the motto of your island? The like central idea that your island is rallying behind with your horse friends. For every human his wants, for every horse his needs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, my uh, motto of the island, Daniel Radcliffe and Equus, is you'll never trot alone. That's beautiful. Beautiful oh. message. Mm-hmm. I'm really struggling. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, yeah. The uh, motto of mine is hooves, not hands. Oh, baby. We've got some beautiful starts here. Now, you get to get a little more free form here. How's your settlement set up? I am on the top of the mountain in the middle of the island, um, and I look down on all the horses. Next to me, I have two horses. One is named Daniel, and one is named Radcliffe. Um, and uh-huh. we, we look down on all the other horses, and they are set up into different encampments. Um, one of them is called the Harry Potter franchise. One of them is called Janet Radcliffe's work on Broadway. And then <laughs> one of them is called that time Daniel Radcliffe was in the creepy lady in black movie the end you are you don't realize this bailey but you're setting yourself up to have a really good base for the next few questions okay there you go (laughs) i would say my society is i'm alone on a giant island full of horses and i'm terrified (laughs) of horses so i'm trying my best to blend in and turn my hands into hooves (laughs) so you are living in fear on this island yeah the horses are huge what do you think and winko teague dylan we live in a base camp that has a huge wooden horse in the middle of it that was given to us as a gift (laughs) and you've never Mm -hmm. gone closer to it (laughs) (laughs) phenomenal okay Uh, what's the political structure of your island bailey you've already sort of hinted at it here can can daniel radcliffe or radcliffe be uh be supplanted or is is it a dictatorship no so i am the dictatorship i claim it's a meritocracy but it's not true nobody can ever overthrow me daniel and radcliffe are constantly trying to overthrow me they're competing against each other but they can never win they just don't know that um and then it is a three-party system with the sections being the Harry Potter franchise, Daniel Radcliffe's work on Broadway, and that time Daniel Radcliffe was in this movie with a scary woman. Those are all the three parties that are voting, but they don't know that I don't count the votes and I just will always win. Ah, okay, so very upsetting (laughs) (laughs) autocracy there, great. Yeah, mine's similar. It's a dictatorship, (laughs) but it's a dictatorship in reverse where all the horses are on equal footing and I'm below them. Outstanding. How about you, Dylan? And mine is run like Plato's The Republic, where me and the wisest horses. <laughs> Dork. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> where me and the wisest horses are uh, in a leadership class, and then we have the government horses that are in charge of the other ones, and then the rest serve as the guardian horses. How do you tell which is the wisest horse? I give them tests, <laughs> and they test me, in re- and they test me in return. Good. This makes sense. All right. We've already sort of hinted at this, but who's uh, who's the leader of your of your island? It seems like we've already answered everyone but me. Uh, oh, on on um, the Isle of Maine, it seems like yeah, everybody except for Toby's leader. Bailey's the mm-hmm. clear leader on Daniel Radcliffe and Equus, <laughs> and in Winko Teague, it's this this uh, 
wise class. <laughs> the council isn't designed to lead. It is just designed to advise and control. Okay. Okay. So is there a leader? Is there a, like a really strong nope. and brave horse that's the leader? Oh, no. The wise horses know that horse power corrupts absolutely. Some horses are more equal <laughs> than others. All right. Uh, only two more questions. You're here forever. So what's your uh, national pastime on your island? Fleeing horses. <laughs> uh, pickleball. <laughs> our pastime is singing hymns to the giant wooden horse that's in the middle of our camp. Yeah, I was wondering if we were going to talk about that again. <laughs> it sometimes sings back. <laughs> phenomenal, phenomenal. Okay, last question. Because these societies are doomed to fail. Um, what? I don't know. Mine seems pretty a, strong. <laughs> when a future archaeologist finds the ruin of your civilization, what do they find? What are like the relics that you leave behind? There will be... Just a collection of broken Harry Potter DVDs with horse hoof prints on them. So it seems like it ends with a, a violent overthrow of you eventually. Hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'd say a single human skeleton with some <laughs> duct tape wrapped around his hands. <laughs> oh, wow. Advanced. Um, a massacre that happened around a huge broken horse statue. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I might have seen it coming. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. These are wonderful islands. Really hard to pick a winner, but I Is am it? going to go. <laughs> I am going to go with honorable mention number one. Is Toby? <laughs> I just feel like you didn't necessarily embrace the, the coexisting, which is not your fault because you're scared of horses. But what can I say? Um, and then honorable mention two is Dylan because you really should have figured out what was going on in that horse. <laughs> and then mm, that's honorable, mention, honorable mention number three, a.k.a. the winner, is Bailey for creating an upsetting autocracy upon an island. Congratulations. Daniel Radcliffe and Equus is our winning island. Yay! Nice. I'm just picturing Lord of the Flies, but with... Horses and Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> that was more. That was more mine. <laughs> oh, that was a great game. Good job, everyone. Yeah, great I'm game. Glad you had fun. All right, yeah. Dylan. Now it's time for you to get out of your wooden horse. It's time for you to choose books at <laughs> random from our shelf to read next. It's time for the choosing. The choosing. The choosing. The choosing. Well. It's a good thing that Toby has some time before his next episode because he might have to go do some traveling in order to buy this book. Please, not, only, not the time traveler's wife again. Because <laughs> not only does he have to like travel like intercontinentally, but then he has to find a very specific type of store. He has to find the left-handed booksellers of London by Garth Nix, number 18. Ooh. Ooh. This is a Pedro recommendation. I'm very excited. Bailey. Yes. If I were to take a guess... Mm-hmm. I think you would like this, but we'd have to experiment to make sure, because we'd have to test out our number 61, The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood. Oh, wow. Mm. I think Pedro's are going to be excited for me to read this book. Um, this is what I know about it. I don't know that much. That it's like all over Instagram and TikTok. It's a romance novel. I believe Allie Hazelwood writes romances like set within the STEM world, and I think this one is set like, mm. scientists. I think there's some other ones with physics and stuff but so i'm excited people love it yeah all right so that means next week on the podcast i will be reading the love hypothesis by ali hazelwood and andrew is reading cry the beloved country by alan Patton. thanks for listening to the to read list if you'd like to get in contact with us you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com follow us on goodreads instagram and the story graph at the to read list podcast
If you are a mysterious financier in the early 20th century, you have a lot of influence. Go on to your podcatcher of choice and rate us five stars. It really helps us out, helps the visibility of the podcast. And uh, you can get a ghostwriter to write a review uh, of our podcast for you. Just make sure it's a positive ghostwritten review. Thank you. And barring that, you could also find two of your closest horses that you've tamed Train them to listen to podcasts and have them download um, and listen to our our work. Because telling friends and family is the best way to find new <laughs> listeners. Word of mouth, even if it's to a horse, helps us a lot. So thank you. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Turkey for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. books.